John. Hey, Marcy. How's it going? It's great. Is it? <laughs> I mean, yes, question mark. <laughs> we just actually, for listeners, we just got off like a 20-minute spiel about our jobs where it was like, everything sucks. <laughs> so, um, so that's actually why I'm laughing. Um, and for disclaimer purposes, if HR is listening, we love our <laughs> jobs. Thank you so much. Agreed, agreed. Um, and my, 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 my best part is, which job am I talking about? <laughs> I, I can actually say the exact same thing at this point. So which one, y'all? Which one? Um, no, how, so how are you doing? We're almost there. We're almost at 2021. We're almost at 2021. Hope is on the horizon. We have... It is. We have so much. So much to look forward to. <laughs> Why don't you introduce homes. us? <laughs> Why don't you introduce us to folks listening if there's anyone new checking in? And then we'll go into the what the F happened this whole year. Wonderful. Well, hey everyone. Um, you've are listening to the pop culture theologians. Um, Marcy and I are two academics that worship at the altar of pop culture um, and find all things religion and theology and break it down through, of course, shows that we love and movies that we cannot stop watching. So um, we want to make sure that you know we're sharing this and spreading the gospel of pop culture with y'all. Um, but if you want to follow us, you can go to our host site, the Engaged Gaze, um, and you want to make sure you're following us on Twitter and Facebook at Pop uh, Theologians um, on Twitter and at Pop Theologians on Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter at jerickson 85 I know it's basic, but Marcy, where can we follow you? Mine's even more basic now. You can follow me at Martha Ovidia on how Twitter. How the tides uh, have turned. The, how the turntables have turned, as Michael Scott would say. Um, yeah, yeah, really basic. Uh, <laughs> So I thought we would do something a little different for our what the fuck happened. So we usually try to run through the crazy shit that has happened in the last week or two, depending on how long we've gone between episodes. But um, we're all home. We feel like you know what's going on for this week. Um, What I thought maybe we would do, John, is do like maybe three lessons we've learned in 2020 since, you know, we're kind of coming up to closing out the year. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? I feel really good. So Marcy, what the happened this year? So I would say that this year I've learned three things that I think are super important. The first one is that it is okay to ask people for help. So I think everyone has experienced, and we talked about this on the podcast, I think everyone's experiencing like such crazy trauma right now and sustaining a significant amount of PTSD from not only the coronavirus and the civil unrest and the fall of democracy, but also the ways in which all of this has been dealt with. So one of the things I saw this year that I think has been like something I've been learning is that the more we talk about mental health and like the ways it pops up, the ways that it, that like it weaves its way in and out of our life, the more we normalize talking about it. And so I felt less alone this year as someone who, um, has like a mental health journey of her own. Uh, So that's one of the things I've learned that I think has been really um, important for 2020. Um, A second thing I would say is that our joy is as valuable as our rage. And I wrote about this for work actually recently. So like so much of this year has been what I would call righteous rage. And we're going to talk about righteous rage in this episode quite a bit. 
everything has been so messed up and has been so purposely harmful. You know, if you go on Twitter, the narrative is like the cruelty is the point of so much of what's happened this year. And it's easy to ca get caught up in the rage part. Um, I remember uh, not too long ago at one of the protests, right, one of the um, Black Lives Matter protests that I went to, um, there was this woman just playing the saxophone and folks were dancing and she just had a sign that says, um, my joy is my resistance, right? And I was like, yes, yes. And like, I talked about this way back when, but like um, when I've done a couple of the border site visits with my work and gone to places where families are separated, one of the things that always struck me is um, the juxtaposition of the absolute horror of the border, um, the wall, the, the, the chain link fences, um, the concentration camps, but then also putting that up next to, if you've ever been to Friendship Park in San Diego, it was actually, um, the, again, the cruelty is the point. They like tore it all down um, in the last year, but I was there a year ago. They would be playing like cumbia and having lunches with family um, through like on the other side of the, um, the chain link fence. And so this year I've tried to remember that as much righteous rage as we are all allowed to feel over everything, my ability to feel joy, like to laugh and have dance parties with my nephews, to hug my service dog super hard, um, to laugh my ass off on my 16th viewing of Schitt's Creek, that's all just as important in this fight. So I think that one um, has been really big. And then my third, what have I learned in this godforsaken, flaming on fire year, um, would be, um, and I, I think I, I tweeted about this, to, to love with no strings attached. Um, this year, I've received a lot of love from folks. Um, I shared last year, around this time of the year, actually it took a bit longer because I was um, still processing, that I was assaulted right before uh, the start of 2020. And the kindness I felt from everyone this year um, with everything that I was going through from the assault to having my husband be an essential frontline nurse um, with no strings attached, like literally I have friends who wrote, don't you dare write a thank you note, just take it. We love you. Like the amount of times, John, that you have let me reschedule podcasts cause I can't do it. Like, cause I don't have it in me. Um, I will forever be changed after this year in how I approach friendships and how I approach people and how I offer love and how I offer my giving and my service and my labor um, in a really different way. So that's the stuff I've learned this year. Um, definitely not how to make ravioli, which was on my list, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope. Marcy, those, are, those are beautiful. Thanks. I just, it's been a really tough year. It's been a tough year for so many folks. Um, and I think that like, as much as we're able to be like, what the fuck is happening? It's also good to be like, what the fuck is happening in me? Like, what have, what have I been able to pull from this horror, you know? Yeah. I mean, boy, it's so hard. What have to you think learned this year? it's so hard to think about resolutions. I mean, and like joy in such a way in some ways, but we have to force ourselves. I mean, joy is a part of life, even in the darkest of times, right? Right. Um, 
so I think the first thing I'm really thankful for is grace. Um, and I say grace in the terms of learning to learn, right? Um, mm-hmm. Grace in the ways in which we've approached our, our year of true, I think, uh, acceptance or unacceptance in terms of ways in which we saw our country set on fire or people who have always seen the fire finally saw it for the first time. Um, but the grace that came along with those people and, and, and those communities who have always um, fought for the right thing to, to help bring more people into the fight. It takes a lot of grace to have a moment where you may be uncomfortable, but to sit in that space and then come out better. Um, and I think we all need a little bit more grace in understanding the ways in which we have all experienced um, tremendous trauma, tremendous pain. We've all been exhausted. We're all exhausted. And it takes a little bit of grace for us to get through. So I think that's probably the one, one of the first things I learned this year. Um, Two, I think it's you're stronger than you think you are. (laughs) Um, I think this applies to you, Marcy, you know, and you've shared on this podcast as well as with me um, with so many things that we all experience. You're stronger than you think you are, but it's oftentimes that community or those friends that that make you realize it. I said it in my acceptance speech. Um, Well, my I don't even know, it's not even an acceptance speech, but I thanked a lot of people because I said they had faith in me when I had no faith in myself. And it's that type of faith and courage and bravery that pushes us all through. We all give it back. We all bring it in when we need to, but ultimately how do we, how do we use that strength for the better? And three, I think ultimately, and this is, I think where, my my life's work has been in this year alone is that there's no right time to step up to lead until you decide to do it yourself and what i mean by that is that i know listeners and other people knew i was i decided to run for a local office right um because i wanted to be the change that i think you know we need in the world that i know we need in the world and we adapted we learned and we won and no one told me it was my time to run or to lead. I had to decide that for myself because there are plenty of people that said, are you sure it's a global pandemic? Are you sure it's this? Are you sure it's that? But ultimately I had to have that moment of silence within myself to say, I can do this. And I think that's the part that many of us in the fight, new to the fight, old in the fight, you know, (laughs) whatever, um, have it's realized so, it's so easy to be like not right now not me right and one of the things i think watching you run and like having quite a few friends who have run for office and school board and stuff is why not you because mm-hmm. like it's 100 percent doable and like for so long that like there's this like deep set kind of um mentality of you know power I mean, we should all be wary of power, right? Ultimate power corrupts ultimately. But that that power is somehow inherited or handed down. Like, no, you have to grab it. And you have to grab it for your community. And you have to grab it for those that you can if you have the opportunity to, like, to make change and make impact, you know? And that's it. 
And, and that's, that's it. Because if not, we'll continue on the same circle with the same 12 people making the same decisions with the same, like, on the same path we've been for so long that has led to the type of inequity and injustice that we have today. I'm really proud of you for running this year. Um, I would not have run in a pandemic year for anything, not even around my uh, neighborhood. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and that ties to this episode significantly. Yeah. Of, when we're all lost, it's how do we respond to power or corruption? Right. Um, and you so I think you we challenge it. And I think to all of our listeners who are probably maybe more socially progressive, I would hope. I mean, if we have other people, that's fine. If we have other people, I'm going to let us know, because why? I'm so surprised. But like, uh, please, I mean, but maybe. Um, welcome. But, but... <laughs> um, but like to everyone that made a phone call, that posted something, that did the did an additional thing this year, when the year said, we're going to make it so you can't do that to everyone that took one more minute to fight thank you read so speaking speaking of fighting and sticking it to the man uh we have an interesting episode yes um, we do. this uh fifth episode of the crown is the visitor i thought it was an alien episode i was like oh great she's abducted or something <laughs> Because we would have missed that in history class. Um, Granted, I think everyone missed that the uh, CIA and FBI declassified that UFOs are real. So people may have missed it. Uh, It's 2020. But uh, John, I think it's time to break into Buckingham Palace. Let's do it. All right. So you and I don't have the same kind of view on this episode. I'm going to be real honest. I thought this episode was filler. Uh, I thought it was boring, and I thought it could have been used to look at a million other different storylines, including Fergie and Diana, Fergie at all. Um, So Sarah Ferguson was childhood friends with Diana. They're super close. They would have been close while she was dating, getting engaged, and getting uh, married to uh, Prince Andrew. anything we could have talked about anything and you could have just let us know that michael fagan uh broke into buckingham palace twice but no we're just gonna take a whole episode to talk about some white male pain um (laughs) (laughs) sure but i will say this episode actually lands very differently because of 2020 and the fallout of american politics in 2020 so this episode oddly feels american to me versus british um though it's telling a a story from british history Mm -hmm. yeah i mean look i'm not saying the episode's like amazing but i did enjoy the class conversation ultimately i mean yeah through the lens of white man but you know (laughs) an understanding the historical context i thought was fascinating i did a little bit more research on it but then i really enjoyed the conversation between the queen and uh michael fagan Who's the one that breaks? Because it feels like any boomer talking with a Gen Zer. It does. In 2020, where it's like, if you give me one more of those like really rehearsed lines, I'm going to scream. Um, As an elder millennial, my entire allegiance is to Gen Z. And apparently, did you know that the generation coming after Gen Z, so those like between one and ten years old right now, are called Generation Alpha. First of all, that sounds like a book series that I want to write. 
I actually have an unfinished manuscript called Alphas that my dad is constantly, hey dad, telling me to finish and I never have. Um, <laughs> similar to my dissertation. Um, yeah, they're Generation Alpha, so they're the ones coming after Gen Z. Hopefully they're, hopefully they will make us look so conservative that like, I will relish in the fact that I'll be an old curmudgeon that they're like, ugh, millennials. Um, I can't wait, but. Fine by me. Fine by me. I can't wait. Um, all right. So we start this episode off with um, Michael Fagan, who is a house painter, who is unemployed, and Margaret Thatcher would say he has no bootstraps to pull. Um, he breaks into Buckingham Palace to have the most epic kiki of all time. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we start off with getting kind of a snapshot of his life. Um, his apartment is sad <laughs> that's, that's an understanding his carpet's wet yeah uh so he's he's got apartment issues uh he's obviously um in a, in a tough spot his wife has left him and he's watching the falkland war happen around him which means he's watching that economic fallout happen um and then we get some snapshots of him being get, getting his kicks out of being rude to people at work and belittling being belittled at bars, right? Um, his like ex-wife, um, her boyfriend, like pretty much is like, you can't take care of the kids or whatever. Um, so then we get him going to his local Marco Rubio, which as a Floridian, I would have told him it doesn't work. Don't, it's not worth it. Um, but he goes to me- his member of parliament, uh, which I'm guessing works the same way local government works here, which is they give you the runaround and they don't help at all, um, ever. And so he decides to do what any normal person would do. He <laughs> breaks into Buckingham Palace. Um, the mean, first time. Sounds about right. I keep thinking of that TikTok. If I had a nickel for every time something happened, we'd have two nickels right now because he breaks in twice. <laughs> but this first break in, he climbs a dream pipe. He goes into the palace through an open window, right? And... Um, we know from the episode that Margaret Thatcher has complained about really lax security in the palace, right? Um, and so, yeah, he breaks in. And all this time, if we wanted to talk about safety at the palace, we could have talked about Anne getting knife hacked in her car, <laughs> but sh- sure. I guess we're just I mean, he get really like breaks in. Like, it's not just like, oh. No, like- he like climbs in. He's like, I'm going I'm to do it. Um, and then he does what all of us would do, which is he, he steals wine and drinks in the throne room. Which is the only thing he got held, uh, like, legally, in, which is yeah. the only thing he got legally in trouble for. Yeah, just for stealing that, that bottle of wine, which I honestly think was, was grace and understanding from Buckingham Palace. Um, and a want to downplay, like, yo. Know, Look, I am so against gun culture. I it's I am a pacifist by every nature, but you're not even going to get near the grass at the White House. How did this man climb up a drain pipe into a wind? Don't they have those fancy, tall-hatted soldiers? Uh, <laughs> exactly. What like, what do they do? The problem with the hat is I don't think they can see anything. I, I honestly don't know why. That. Like, I mean. She could have died. She could. She could. She could have been killed. Right. Uh, yeah. No. 
So just kind of bananas that this happens. Um, but John, I want to know if you went up a drain pipe and climbed into Buckingham Palace, what would you do? I would like sit, I would get my, well, I would bring my selfie stick and then <laughs> I would go to the throne, throne room and I would find whatever like <laughs> crown I could probably. I, Honestly, I would just like sit there and have tea. I mean, who knows? I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's like a dog catching a car. Like, what do you do when you catch it? What do you do with it? I would a hundred percent find the jewelry vault. I don't want to steal it. I have no need for a tiara. I really don't. I've tried. I have some. Um, I, I I don't have need for it. My life does not include tiaras. But I would walk into that vault, and my God, I would try on everything. I. I would be a danger to magnets. I would just be covered head to toe in uh, every piece of jewelry. Since Maybe I'd take a painting. Ooh, smart. Secure your economic future. Very yeah, smart. like maybe I'd take like a, like a really horrible, like, <laughs> like a Van Gogh or something, like, like one of the crappy ones. If you're ones. that rich, would you know it was gone? No, I mean, she doesn't no. know that her, in the third the, season, the she doesn't know that her guy's like a spy for Russia. Right. Be bold, John. You're right. Actually, I take it back. I would not go looking for the vault. I would pocket a Fabergé egg and jump out oh, the window. There is a collection. There is a collection. And you do uh, love I, your knickknacks. I do. I, and I love, I love Fabergé eggs. So, all right. So he gets to the throne room drinks and he gets chased out by a maid, not even by cops, not even by a security, a maid. And then we're led to believe that he then hits rock bottom. So it wasn't during the uh, apartment is flooded, uh, wife has a boyfriend, kids can't see him. He hits it later. Um, so he loses all custody with his kids because of the issues with his apartment. And then the Falkland War is won. And the celebrating becomes this massive kind of like wound, right? Because his losses, his trauma, his, um, his, his position and inequity is in stark contrast to this, like, woohoo, we won, right? Like, um, and this is where I think this episode, at least for American audiences, becomes extremely relevant and painful to watch because as the stock market has sailed and billionaires have made more billions, we as a people have literally, I mean, this year has, has brought into such stark relief the income inequality that lives in the American capitalistic kind of system, right? Like our food lines are longer than they've ever been. The amount of people that are in foreclosure, forbearance, uh, the debt that the majority of Americans carry, um, shout out in particular to medical and student debt, right? And yet there's like Wall Street Journal articles of like, the stock market's doing great. And I'm like, the stock market has nothing to do with the average American. It yeah. just doesn't. And so I will say that this episode becomes very real there of like what it's like to be like, Bezos had to create a new word because billionaire doesn't even work anymore. And it's over here. It's like, you know, all of us are like terrified that our student loans are going to be due in January. And as someone who has chronic illness, I don't even know who holds my medical debt, right? Like, um, yeah. So it, it's, I, I can understand the depths of his despair and desperation. Now, do I want to go break into the White House? 
No, but it has more to do with how terrifying I find the people in the White House. If it was, if it was Granny, I might go talk to her. I don't know. I mean, it just shows you. Also, like, because of the ways in which this, this is a really, you know, big security threat, as we all know, toxic masculinity, but white male toxic masculinity. Like, when you think about the ways in which this man's taunted, like, you know, the wife's new boyfriend, like, taunts his, like, you know, masculinity and you know the ways in which most well not most all of these individuals that have shot up people are white men you know i was like oh boy like is this a piece of like i mean this could have gone really crazy yeah yeah um and yeah i I guess like part of the underlying kind of thing there that you're touching on is this feels a little hillbilly elegy to me right and like i don't have patience for that um the economic anxiety and hardship of white people is a very real thing, but it is tied closer to the economic and um, and civil injustice that black folks have than it has anything to do with whiteness. Um, poverty comes after race um, and, and the complications and overlap of, of injustice and marginalization does exist, but it's just exhausting. Like I don't particularly have um, a lot of space for it. I will say the British um, situation, even even here in in the late '80s, um, is different than the American situation, but not that different. Um, so, um, like, I get it. Like, this actually historically happened, so that's why we're covering it. But it does feel a little hillbilly elegy to me. But I have all, not all right, so film, by the way. yeah, unlike any person of color, he's able to break into Buckingham Palace again. Um, and the show does kind of imply that the queen hid the first break-in so that Thatcher wouldn't know she was right, that they needed more security. And she even makes a comment that, like, Buckingham Palace already feels a little bit like a prison, um, which is an interesting thing to say when Diana's been saying that no one's listening. Mm-hmm. So he climbs into the queen's bedchamber, um, and it takes her a hot minute to figure it out. And I actually really admire, like, this is where that British stiff upper lip is important. As a real-life Colombian woman um, who was raised on, like, la chupacabra, la mano peluda, (laughs) anything wakes me up in the middle of the night, I'm killing it. Wait, Marcy, is this a a great time to tell our listeners what you usually sleep next to or have a Way to put me on blast. I <laughs> I have machetes and knives all over my... I'm anti-gun, but I'm obviously terrified of like, the dark. And so I have, like, random knives all over my house. And, like, it's so bad. It's My husband's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Also, I don't know how to use a knife. I'm also not strong. I will also probably pass out before an attack even happens. Um... I had a niece one time in California wake me up in the morning. She had snuck into our room and she was looking right at my face. And when I tell you that I pushed that child, like she was a demon, I mean it. Like I could have broken her ribs. Oh, that's, well, that's the thing. It's like when people are awoken in the middle of the night, you're just like, oh, it's just not responsible. You're not, I just, I honestly feel there has to be an exception for what you do in that five second period between sleep and recognizing what's happening. But the queen is so graceful during it. 
she just kind of takes it in, like it slowly sits up, is like very calm. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, hello. Um, whereas I would literally be saying every word that I've ever learned while trying to find my machetes. Um, and then he's also really calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, he. I would be like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. But like... He like sits at the foot of her bed and asks for a cigarette. Like he's Margaret. Like, can I have a cigarette, please? Right? And it's just such a strange exchange. And we actually know historically from one of the books that was written about her life that was approved by by Buckingham Palace that the conversation that happened while this isn't an exact like the general spirit of what he says is actually represented in this episode because he makes a singular ask pretty much which is save us save us from Margaret Thatcher yeah please right um and then she tells him like she tells every other person that has ever told her a problem I'm sure it'll sort itself out. It'll be all right. Right? Um, a which is so dismissive. Is right. It's so dismissive. She's done it to everyone. Diana, Margaret. Like, that is her go-to line. We've touched on that. But then he begins to kind of share his story about how his life has fallen apart, about how, you know, like, he doesn't have anything, how hard it all is, right? And it, it's we've said on this podcast often that encounter changes people, right? Um, the, there is something to be said about the fact that the easiest way to change someone's heart is to have an exchange with them, have a shared moment, right? A shared piece of humanity with each other. And I do think that him being open and honest about like, my life has fallen apart. I've lost my kids. I've lost my job. I lost my carpet, like all of it. <laughs> she actually listens. No, she does. And that's why I enjoyed this entire scene because she sits there because she never gets to have this interaction. I remember in this episode, is it this episode where they have um, the juxtaposition between um, them and the general public where they meet with the general public. And remember in the season two, when that became a thing, when that guy tried to make them seem more approachable. And so they met with the public more. Right. Um, well, I, I don't know if it was season two, but I do know that Peter Morgan's uh, the queen definitely puts into contrast the um, ability to be human for real and performative that the royals have struggled with significantly. Mm -hmm. And not just Elizabeth. I would say that the current royals massively have struggled with it. Um, and we saw that play out with um, the Sussexes and pretty much everyone else, right? Yeah. And we um, see this way in which, you know, they put their, when they go to meet the public, you know, they put their gloves on. It's so performative, but it's so cold. Yeah. It's so cold. Um, and dehumanizing. I would say it's dehumanizing. And it goes back to the fact, and I've said this on the show, on the podcast before, and like I will say it again, you cannot be a good person and believe in what constitutes becoming a royal. Like the idea that you are chosen specifically by God to be privileged and to be all these things is by its nature a toxic and dangerous ideology. So I don't like any of these people fundamentally as humans, but we examine them as people in the show. Um, but I will say that the queen has a moment of humanity where she, she listens to this man as a human and not as a queen and not as a woman who is potentially in danger. Um, so he tells her that now what they're saying is that he has mental issues, right? So 
instead of addressing all of the factors that have led to his state in in life they're they they're like oh it's just mental health right which hey interesting how we see that merit in the american criminal justice system where every time a white dude goes haywire it's mental health um and yet when it's people of color marginalized uh, they bring up every single inequity that built up a monster. And I'm using air quotes around the monster um, because they don't want to attach it to mental health because then they'd have to deal with it. Um, but I saw a really great, great tweet this week that said, therapists are great, but what people need is money. Money is a type of therapy. And this is very, very true. So I'm a huge advocate for mental health, um, uh, for therapy, for every type of help you can get but nothing annoys me more than when people are like money cannot buy happiness only rich people say that because money can buy you peace and peace can let you heal right inequity does create mental health issues poverty perpetuates mental health because mental health is affected by the stress of poverty it's circular. Like there's no start or beginning to it. So separating it is extremely damaging. Um, it's just, it's, it's frustrating to me. And he's frustrated because he's acknowledging it's easy to say men it's mental illness, babe. Right. Like it's really easy to say that when, okay, but how did we get there? And the way we got there is actually stuff that the queen is clearly not aware of. Cause what does she do? She tells him to get on public assistance, get on welfare. And he's like, yo, Thatcher destroyed that. And it shows she's not even paying attention. No. All the things that made the country great, and I'm using air quotes because we all know great is very subjective, are gone under Thatcher. She, she massively attacked the social safety net, right? And the queen didn't even know. And it is such a damning moment. Because like, if you don't know, right, how can you possibly be leading effectively? Or more importantly, why does your leadership matter at all if you don't even know what's going on? And then he says, you know, Thatcher wants your job. She's going to go after it. Like power wants power. And she kind of like is like, mm, but you can tell that that lands for her, mm -hmm. I think. Because there's one thing that she knows she has that other people don't. And that's power. But it's un, it's, um, it's the type of power that in essence is uh, ever present. Well, I mean, yes and no. If anything, Philip has made it very clear how, how quickly Royals can lose power, right? Mm -hmm. His family, remember he was like snuck off in a lemon crate from Greece. Um, they're effectively one of the last um, hereditary Royal lines left in the modern world mm -hmm. so so actually saying and granted they don't have the 2020 to know that charles is about to blow up the royals in a really horrible way um but there's a forward 2020 um though 2020 vision feels different after 2020 um but her power is relative whereas thatcher can grab for power that would be considered more equitable Right. So there is definitely a reason to be afraid of Margaret Thatcher or more importantly, what she symbolizes, which is this country could have a democratically elected leader. It doesn't need you. Because it doesn't. 
Um, where we'll see where that gets complicated is in the coming episodes when we see the crown really go up against Thatcher in regards to the Commonwealth. Yeah. There's reasons that British people have kept uh, the royals around, right? So it's not as clear cut as royalty is inequitable. Uh, eliminate it. Yes, 100%. Eliminate it. It is inequitable. It is outrageous that it still exists in 2020. But from a political standpoint, there's reasons that countries have kept it that make political sense. Not equitable, but political sense. But so who comes in and, and breaks this whole kiki out? Is it maid. another maid? Another maid. And the queen very politely says, you know, get the police. And Fagan just sits there. <laughs> we just all sit there. Um, this I thought was beautifully shot because her asking for the police and him just sitting there and her just sitting there shows how absolutely ridiculous these power hierarchies are, right? My favorite part of the episode after all of this was in understanding um, was the line, is there anything else you want to tell me? Right. Like, because if What felt- I wish she had said was that hairstyle is aging you significantly. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, but and ultimately, it felt very personal because I feel like they did have a really real conversation because I do think his conversation did did shape her in a way. I agree. I agree. Um, so when he's taken away, he's actually committed as schizophrenic. Um, and when they first committed him, it was like for, indefinitely forever. But he actually only lasted three months. And he's still alive and well and mm-hmm. very much a functioning person in society. And he provided um, so, background information for the episode. Right, which is so interesting. Um, and then the episode kind of ends on um, Thatcher, like the queen is like hate watching Thatcher celebrate the end of the war on TV. And I feel like you're supposed to really grasp that the queen is struggling with the, the reality of British life that she just learned about through Fagan versus the grotesqueness of Margaret Thatcher's celebration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're supposed to kind of, I mean, not you're supposed to, but one thing I took in is she actually listened to him more than she's ever listened to any of her kids or her husband or Diana or anyone else, um, which I will say to credit, that is the job of the crown. The crown is for the people. And so there's this kind of perverse beautifulness about the fact that like the only time we've really seen the queen value someone's like narrative is her people in this episode. And what's the ultimate no-no that Margaret Thatcher does while she's watching the television that really just, you know, and this is historical and, and proven in fact that, you know, she really gets called to the carpet for not in the episode, but you see it when the queen's watching. What is it? Oh, it's that they had the troops salute Margaret Thatcher and they're usually saluting the queen. See, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, so in the traditional Falklands uh, War, the parade that occurred, because remember, this brought um, Margaret Thatcher. That would have definitely hit that spot where he was like, I'd keep an eye on her. Mm -hmm. Well, it did. And the thing is, is this Margaret Thatcher probably would have been out of power after this, but the Falklands war gave her roughly, you know, a couple more terms (laughs) to say the least. Right. Um, Like any war it's war is great for politicians. It is. um, Unless you're Donald Trump. Uh, (laughs) But, and the war is a virus that you can't control. Right. 
Um, but ultimately, yeah. So in historical context, uh, when they have the war, the troops salute Margaret um, and not the queen. And it's a big no-no. And it's it's out there um, in historical context. So the ways in which you watch the television and you see all these things, you're just setting up this conversation that we see at the end of the series, but ultimately through the next second half of the rest of the five episodes. 100%. This was like a we're about to get into the nitty gritty of these two women going up against each other, which isn't, isn't historical. It isn't, isn't true. Um, It is extremely useful to the narrative. Um, And I do think the, though I know some people were like the Commonwealth episode is also a waste of time. I think it's very important again, in light of everything we have seen in 2020, um, the civil unrest that exists all over the world right now. Um, Hashtag support to folks in Paris who are on the streets marching against police brutality. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how he's setting this up. I think maybe my my complaint, instead of it being like, why do you focus on what you focus on, is why can't we get 12 episodes versus 10? Why can't we flesh stuff out a little more? But I just found out, not just found out, um, but finding out that this is the most second this this is the second most expensive show to have ever been made in tv history and we're talking about 10 episodes right i think second only to game of thrones right Mm -hmm. and game of thrones's major budget is blown on location right and cgi and and cgi this this is literally just an extremely extremely expensive show that doesn't even have a travel budget or anything like that um I can understand why we don't get 12 episodes, but would I like them? Yes. Do I think it would serve the show more to flesh out all of these relationships just a little bit more, humanize them a little bit more? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, the show is reportedly costing 6.5 to $13 million per episode. It's in- that's insane. Um, that it's just, that's just such a crazy number. Um, there's not even a dragon in it. Um, give us a dragon at least give us a dragon please um yeah no so so yeah that's this episode um i guess it wasn't as boring as i thought um but wait what was that marcy wait what was that i was i guess i I guess you might have been right okay thank you it's been a while i just it's just been a while since you heard it yeah it's not as boring as, as as i thought it's just not one i would revisit this season has a ton of episodes that I would just watch for vibe, right? Like just, I would vibe on them because they just feel nice. Um, even in their dysfunction, this just isn't an episode I would go back to. Um, yeah. so, I've rewatched but, the season twice now and I haven't watched, I kind of skipped over this episode. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, all right, y'all, we will see you, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, for episode six. Thank you for joining us. See ya. Bye.